Jamie. Hi, Jane. We've got Ray, the Baron. Eleanor's here. Leah, Carol, Sue, Lorraine. We've got an iPhone on general. Um, so I'm Stanford. I'm going to give uh, maybe another minute or two for everyone to join and get their sound sorted. And then we're going to start tonight to talk about IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. Uh, Hello, Sierra. Sue's connecting. Camille, Leah. Great. I think we got most of everyone. So again, my name is Stanford. I'm a doctor, medical doctor, work in psychiatry, mental health, previously worked in maternity. Uh, I'm also a yoga teacher and a yoga therapy trainee under Colin. And I'll let Colin introduce himself. Hi, my name's Colin. I'm a yoga therapist and a yoga therapy trainer. Um, and Stanford, we've got a subject matter of IBS tonight. Um, can you just can I just open up? I, I, I like to ask you questions first of all because it detracts detract from me, and I can just hand it over to you quite quietly and, and just disappear off into a corner. Um, but I was just wondering, could you um, just build out a little bit more about what is IBS? What what constitutes IBS from your perspective? Yeah, I have noticed that. I, I picked up on it as well. You just start asking me a question and can rest for about five, ten minutes. I'll, 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 I'll flick it back to you very, very soon. Don't worry. So IBS, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, also known as kind of a lay term, but also at the same time, it's an interchangeable term or sometimes an older term, splastic, uh, sorry, uh, colon, irritable or nervous colon or mucus colitis. Um, the term mucus colitis, I think, is because one of the many symptoms that IBS present, actually, you can have a lot of mucus from your bowel um, habits. Um, so that's probably where the name comes from. It's incredibly common and it's chronic. I think if you have seen our social media plugs, we already talked talk about how actually about 20% of the population, general population, and usually actually started quite early around our 20s and 30s sadly affect uh, predominantly female, of course it affects uh, male member of the society as well, but it seems to be more common in female, it seems more in Southeast Asia and maybe South America as well, but it is pan well basically, the whole world we really see these issues. And the people who get affected, they can have like different types of bowel problem, it's not really one unifying um, symptoms per se. Some people get diarrhea, some people get constipation, some people get a lot of flutulence and bloating. Most of them, most of the time, will get quite a lot of pain symptoms, like abdominal pain, sometimes the pressure and pain from the bloating itself, uh, cramps, because um, sometimes the pain can come from back passage if you get the con uh, diarrhea type as well. So it is a really troubling um, syndrome, because already we can see, hopefully, that one is probably quite difficult to diagnose because it just has so many variable um, variations of the syndrome. Um, it's not the easiest to pick up and at the same time it's also very common and it's a lot of the time lifelong. Now I'm going to flick the question back to Colin. Um, so it's IBS is defined by when the bowel habit is not normal for usually di diagnostic criteria will be more than six months because that's any chronic syndrome so mm -hmm. anything acute is usually less than six weeks uh, more than between six weeks to six months is kind of subacute anything around six three to six month mark is chronic so the question will be what is a normal bowel habit please 
I don't know. That's cheating. No, you have to answer. <laughs> um, what we tend to look at is we tend to look at um, three different types of people. So there's, there's different types of bowel habit for different people. So there's irregular bowel habit, which is actually normal. So there's what we consider to be regular irregular. So they're regularly irregular. And this is completely normal. It's a normal, normal condition. And certain constitutions of people have regular, what we call regular irregular. Um, so it can occur different times of day. It can be, but it is kind of regular in its irregularity. Then we've got what we consider to be um, regular. Every day at a particular time of day, the bowel will actually move. And then we've got sort of hyperregular, which is where there's several regular bowel movements within day. So we, we categorize it into three different areas. Um, now, IBS is an extremely common functional trouble that can manifest, as you said so clearly, in three different ways. So it can be constipation. So it can be a constipated effect with pain, or it can be diarrhea with pain, or it can be alternating between the two. So we put it into these three different areas. And then we've got these three other categories that I've just mentioned before as well. So we've actually then got sort of a number of different variables with regard to IBS, the condition. However, what we tend to look at is that we tend to look at the person. And so for me, the primary aspect is actually the person with the condition. Um, and often people that are affected by this, um, they tend to suffer quite a lot and they often tend to be trying all types of different therapies to actually help. So I've seen quite a lot of this as well. Um, for me, the person is key. Their history is absolutely key and their story is key to the whole thing. So for me, understanding as much about the person as possible is hugely important to actually beginning to start to help them. And what I want to do is sort of explain just a little bit more and then begin to build out the reasons why we need to understand as much as possible. And um, you mentioned something beautiful, which is actually that it's a long term diagnosis. So it's actually something that occurs over a long period of time in someone's life. And therefore, the approach to with that is that we have to take very small steps with consistency over time. So there's no instant way of coming out of this. It's a long process and it takes time. And in fact, I've been, I've worked with a couple of cases where there has been success with regard to this. And I'm also just about to start work with someone else with this as well. Um, so it's, and I'm working with someone else with this as well. So it, it's, it's, it is possible, but consistency is the key. And I'll explain just a little bit more in a minute. Um, IBS is the effect. So what this means is it's a functional effect. It's, it's the actual function of the system is out of kilter and it's showing you there's something wrong. It means that there's something irregular, irregular occurring within the system and it's expressing out in a material body form. And it means that there's underlying causes and contributing factors towards this. And you mentioned some of the causes quite nicely. And I think um, we find that, uh, and what do you, Stanford just put to pose a question back. What, what, have, what research have you found with regard to stress 
as a cause with regard to this or, or food as a cause with regard to this? What, what other causes are there? So I think I can name the risk factor, which is what I've done, but exact, exact cause for IBS, I think still unknown. I, I did try quite hard to look for a proper cause and study and lots of Western doctors and researchers or, you know, medical academic people have looked into, um, genetic components and then maybe some gen genes that has been identified but not really um, apparently some family history may be indicated um, but most of the time it seems to be the gut movements either too much or too little now what causes that is you know I think I think you named a really good cause which is food because obviously that's the substance that most closely are related to the gut because that's what's inside the gut all day most of the time um, but we, we don't know exactly what is the things that are triggering it sometime. Now, there's some suggestions that um, a different kind of um, sugar structure seems to set off IBS a little bit more. Um, I put, um, I researched something called the FODMAP diet, which means fermentable oligo dye mono, monosaccharide and polypoid. Um, diet, uh, if you have a low component of that in your diet, seems to be less likely to trigger IBS. Now, what does that mean? Like oligosaccharide is when basically lots and lots of sugar components link up together. So these are usually your wheat, your your rye, your lugamin, uh, sometimes actually even in garlic, onion, uh, certain vegetables, uh, they also contain these as well. Because once again, remember the cell wall outside vegetables, they are actually also sugar structure. Um, so these are the things that seems to be more prone to be fermented inside the gut. And of course, if you have too much fermentation and change of the gut uh, microbiome, sometimes it can offset the gut's health in itself. Um, a certain amount of good microbiome is good, but too much of a good thing is always can be poisonous. Uh, my mom's a chemist and that's one of the first lessons I've learned in life. Um, just to finish the whole FODMAP diet, uh, in case you're writing things down, disaccharide, that's basically anything that's like a two sugar uh, complex, usually anything that's in dairy or lact uh, lactose. And these are the things that is inside, that's called disaccharide. And monosaccharide is anything that's singular. So usually things that taste really, really sweet. So like your fructose, that's the sugar that's most common in fruit, uh, your glucose um, in honeys and nectar as, as well. The way to really tell rather something has sugar, I, I find I'm a bit weird. So I find is if you put it in your mouth, because the inside of saliva, there's something called the amylase. So it's an enzyme that um, kind of digest and set, um, make the sugar components a little bit smaller or easy and to be easier to be absorbed. If it starts tasting sweet after like maybe, maybe 30 seconds after a minute, that's usually something that has sugar in it. And then the last thing, uh, polio, uh, polio uh, which is contained in lychees, blackberry and sugar substitutes. Uh, so once again, um, I think I'm going to go back to my saying that actually um, soda pop or fizzy drinks, especially diet version, actually sometimes worse for your gut health because not only the fizziness causes uh, bloating and flatulence problem, uh, but actually the sugar substitute itself can cause this problem as well. It has been suggested caffeine and alcohol also irritate the bowel a little bit more, so it can offset IBS as well. Now, in terms of stress, there, there is definitely a major link towards um, IBS, but I, again, have to say I can't find any 
like really concrete evidence saying that you know this amount of stress equals IBS, and that amount of stress means that you can be free from your symptoms. Mainly also because we don't really have a very reliable and measurable scales of stress because everyone's stressed about things differently in different ways and different amounts. Um, however, one suggestion is also because you know I think most of us have heard about it: the gut brain the enteric nervous system. So that seems to be a strong link between our um, sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system. So our flight and flight, so our risk and you know, agitation um, uh, nervous system and our resting and digesting, our soothing relaxation uh, nervous system. So the three systems seems to be very closely linked to each other. So if you know, we're constantly stressed or we're constantly activating our sympathetic one, it does have a knock-on effect on the others as well. So hopefully that helps, but I don't think I can give you any more, anything more concrete than that. Colin, you happy? Uh, oh, I'm always happy, Stanford. Um, what I, what I like is I, I like, and, and I remember when I was training I, and we, we kept going through different conditions and what I found is that when we were looking at conditions again and again, it was constantly cause unknown. We don't know the cause for these things. We don't know the cause for these things. We don't know the cause for these things. And I find that very, very interesting because it, there has to be combinations of causes that are different for each person because each person is different that kind of come together to bring this effect in the system. So. What we tend to do in yoga is that we, we appreciate that the cause is often stated unknown. We understand that stress is, and, and different people perceive stress in different ways. So we, we look at stress as being a factor and we look at how stresses impact the person, but I, I'll come on to this in a short while. Now, IBS is, a, is what we call an, it, it's, it's an apana disorder. So it's a disorder of the apana region. Um, and the apana region is, it regulates the movement of the whole of the pelvic cavity. So it, it, it regulates the ascending, the transverse, the descending, the sigmoid colons. It, it's, it also manages what's going on in the rectum, the reproductive system, the urinary tract. It, it's, it's something that we need to know about. Its function is to eliminate, to let go, to move things through. And there's a dysfunction of this. So we often say that there is a, an imbalance. The imbalance is created because of vata pushing into pitta within the system, so into the colon. And so what we get is we get this kind of fluctuation between the two. We get the drying on one aspect and we got a lot of movement on the aspect, other aspect. And we get a fluctuation between two of these. So what we start to get is we start to get um, an imbalance in the way that the stuff that we take in is actually processed. So we take things in and the decision has to be made when we take it in to the system. And it's an automatic decision that occurs about an intelligent aspect of the system about what to hold on to, what to keep, what to let go of, what to eliminate. And with these decisions that are happening within the system, both of them need to be moved through the system. So both what to hold on to and what to let go of needs to be moved through the system. And so therefore there needs to be communication that's happening. So there are five different areas that we start to come to observe what's happening. 
what is taken into the system, the decision-making process. Now, it's quite interesting that when we're put under stress, often we can't make a decision. And so it's kind of, for me, it's interesting when I start to see what we take in, what actually we need to hold on to, what we need to keep, what we need to actually hold on to, and what we need to make a decision about about what to let go of, and how both of those then move through our system as a process. And the communication that occurs at each stage right the way through, for us as a yoga therapist or yoga practitioner, we have to start to observe these things. So we're starting to begin to see and understand the functions through their consistency of the actions that are occurring within the system, not just physically, but actually for me, also mentally and emotionally, because there is a connection between all these different things. It's like, if I become stressed, my breathing changes. So there is a kind of a connection right the way through the system for me. And like before I present here tonight, suddenly I get some butterflies in my stomach and I kind of think I want to go to the bathroom, but actually I don't need to go to the bathroom. So do, does that make sense, Stanford? So it, for me, this is the, the starting point um, to begin to understand that the manifestation of the IBS is on a physical domain that I can measure, but the evidence of it, of what's going on, means that actually possibly the causes are somewhere deeper. And what I'm starting to do is, is I'm realizing that it's a complex condition. I, I, I know that it's not just physiological, that actually most cases point, point towards psychological as well. However, when in conversation with people about this, many people with this condition would tend to reject this, first of all. Um, in fact, one of the guys that I'm speaking with at the moment that wants to start work on his condition has said it's taken two years for him to be able to sit down and say, yes, there is a possible connection between these things. And if you told me this two years ago, I'd have turned around you and said, I don't know what you're talking about. So it's kind of interesting that actually when you sort of start to unravel it more and more, you start to realise that there is this kind of connectivity between what's happening on the surface and what's going on deep underneath. Um, so for me to understand these things and also, Stanford, you mentioned this idea of too fast, too slow. So you've got on one hand, too fast, too slow, too much, too little um, at each step. And the idea of consistency, communication, regulation between what we take in what we decide to hold on to, what we decide to keep, what we decide to let go of and how we communicate or move that through the system. For me, it's, um, for me, that is the sort of the framework or the structure that as a therapist or as yoga therapist, I'm coming to observe and watch very carefully about how these things are occurring. And I'm not looking to second guess. I'm, I'm looking for, for very clear evidence. And, and it's why for me, the person's story and the history becomes crucially important and getting to know the person over a period of time becomes important because it, this has occurred. It's, it's, a, it's a chronic situation that has occurred and we need to spend time to begin to understand it, to understand them, them with the condition and begin to sort of start to unravel it and also begin to start working with them on it. Um, did that? No, I think that was great because you said, especially your, 
your not analogy but your expression of how is actually how the body's communicating the different parts of the body is communicating into itself and also to the body as a whole really rings bell because the word itself syndrome actually suggested that the etiology or the causes of the problem is multifactorial because syndrome itself it actually just means it's a collection of signs and symptoms mm. that is a link or associated or caused by a certain disease or disorder so in in some way it, it, the reason why it's so variable because it's a collection of something is not one simple diagnosis that you can really make unlike let's say diabetes i know it's very complicated as well i'm not in no way trying to simplify it but at least diabetes you eat a lot of food and your body's unable to keep your blood sugar level to a normal limit you have too high blood sugar that's when you have diabetes of course the underlying process is a lot more complicated and how it can further manifest is very very complicated as well so that's why you have things like uh, metabolic syndrome you have diabetic uh, complication but we'll save that for another time but for ibs because in it in itself it's such a collection of different things it's very very complicated and when things are complicated or complex in nature i sometimes find it's almost like comparing to a family argument you know like almost like things happen and you know when, when you see the effect of IBS is family you know really fighting against each other almost like drawing their fist and things like that however what caused that fight rarely is that one thing that someone else said maybe that one thing that someone else says like oh you're always like that it's the trigger point but usually all the angers and all the problem is so deeply laid down and so many more conversation and in interaction that you have had not just that day but probably a few weeks a few months a few years or a few even a few decades beforehand which is i think why to pinpoint exactly what causes ibs is going to be difficult but at the same time maybe it's also why it uh, it has such a variable um or such a variation in this presentation in this official like classification by the medical society you have you know quite a few subtypes. you can have ibsc which is the constipation type you can have ibsd which is diarrhea type mix or alternating type you can have pain predominant you can have be post-infective um and also you unsubtyped so very very or unspecified which is very helpful um i think from a medical profession what is important when you start presenting with new bowel habit um especially over six weeks period of time is to make sure there's nothing else going on so usually where we worry that when you accompany with certain urinary symptoms because it might suggest that something is actually going on because the bowel and the rectum especially and the bladder is quite close together so maybe there's something either in between or it's actually something set up by one or the other more sinister speaking maybe if especially if your female is changing into your menstruation uh, period or uh, during sex as well um lower back pain again because of the area of that and also unexplainable weight loss that tend to be a red flag sign um that you're not intending to lose weight you're eating adequately but you're still losing a lot of weight sometimes that is quite a important sign especially people worry about cancer uh of course if you have family history of cancer either bowel or ovarian cancer that's something more worrying and you probably should just go to your gp and just to get checked out and also age group is a big thing if you are over the age of 30 and like all through your lives because as we said already ibs typically happens when you're 20 and 30 years old so suddenly later on you know towards the latter half of your life you suddenly develop a different imbalance habit that tends to be more worrying because that suggests either there's a big change in your system uh, that's happening naturally over accumulation accumulation of time or that big change is actually something more sinister like cancer again um 
Now, I do wonder, because as during my research, it says that actually IBS-1 is a lifelong disease, uh, but also change, apparently the presentation can change every few years. So kind of as a follow-up for my earlier question, uh, what is the normal bowel habits? Because in Western medicine, we know like we have a range from every three days to three times a day. That's the normal range in Western medicine. But does our bowel habit change according to not just only a constitution, but season, maybe um, timing of day, maybe also with our age, Colin? I love the way we get to talk about bowel habits. I mean, I, did I tell you the story about um, when I first was training to be a therapist? Did I tell you about this? No, go ahead. please tell us. So I was trying to be a therapist, and I remember we were, we had, we had to do this whole kind of thing where you had to go through and ask, you know, patients, different patients, about different things, and you know, one of the things was about bowel habit. And I, I must admit, I was, I was, and many of you probably heard the story from me, um, but I was very kind of. Um, how should we say? Um, I didn't like to talk about anything to do with bowel habits whatsoever. And so I, I just kind of like turned around to the patient and I'd be sitting there and he said, so is everything okay down there? Down where? <laughs> exactly. So it, it's, it's kind of interesting because the variable nature of a bowel habit over history of a person is kind of interesting to understand. And for me, it's a very, very individual and very personal thing. And, you know, I was hugely embarrassed about talking about it. And I realized that actually, you know, when everyone just was laughing at me so much because I was kind of going, look, um, is everything okay down there? I realized that I actually needed to really take it very seriously and really understand how an individual with their bowel habit is and their relationship with their bowel habit because believe it or not according to yoga the bowel movement is one of the only it's one of five ways the only five ways that you can communicate in the world so your bowel habit is a form of communication isn't that weird okay it's a form of expression i know it sounds very strange the other is that you can move in space okay so the fact that you can move in space is a, is a, is a form of expression the fact that you can grasp something that is also an, a way that we actually can express in the world. The fact that I can speak, communicate is a way that I can express. The fact that I can pleasure myself using my genitals is a way that I can express. And so also bowel habit is the fifth way. So we need to actually see that these are actually ways that we come to express and they're unique for each person. Does that make sense, Sanford? Yeah, so almost like IBS, kind of continuing with my analogies, it's a miscommunication between us and the world. Right. So for me, a thorough understanding of how the problem manifests is of real importance of working with someone. And so it, it, it's it's the key is actually to really begin to uncover as much history as possible for so for me it's all in the asking of questions the questions that i ask people often they don't appear to be connected so the person may not actually be realizing that what i'm doing is that i'm starting to ask lots of questions so i was speaking to this guy the other day and i said look 
you know, I'm going to be asking lots of questions. They're going to appear to be quite random to you, but they're actually all they're doing is they give me lots of insight into the way that different aspects of you is functioning, because I need to start to understand a lot more, not just about how your bowel movement is operating, but how this kind of functioning is happening right the way through the system, how you're taking things in, how you're processing things, how you're doing it with regard to the rules that you're laying down. Because quite a lot of the time I found that there's a numbers of different rules that are laid down by people. And it's often many of these rules get challenged by situations and actually cause stress on the system. So I'm starting to understand the rules, the reference points, how these are put into play. And I start to ask lots and lots of questions. And it's a little like being a detective. The detective work for me is the exciting thing. I'm looking to really, really uncover as much evidence as possible in order to help this person. And then what I'm looking to do is that I'm starting to go by what they've said, what they've presented, how they're acting, what they're doing, how their actions are, how they're coming to approach things, to process things through their activities, their actions, that I'm starting to discover a lot more things about them. And it's through that that I can then make decisions on different tools and approaches that I can use to help them. Does that make sense, Stanford? It does. And I, I'm going to try to make you talk a little bit longer because I want you to use your example of how you ask your clients to make a food diary. I, I was going to say it's probably one of the most useful tools can, I can think of as well, but I, I don't want to steal your ideas. So I'm going to let you talk about it. You, you, you're welcome. It, it's not. It's not a secret. I mean, it's. You see, there's a, there's a number of different things that are going on for me. Um, when I'm when I'm working with someone, is that I, I want to. If it comes from me, they don't discover it. It has to come from them to discover something about what's going on within them. So often I'll use something like a food diary to get someone to start first of all not to understand not just the food that they're taking, but the rules that they're applying onto the food that they're taking. So there tends to be numbers of different rules that become stressor points with people around food. And then there's emotion associated with food as well. So I get happy and smiley faces, these type of things. So that what someone's starting to realize is they're starting to understand as they're doing a food diary, it's almost that they're starting to see their relationship between their emotional state and the food that they're eating and the rules that they're putting in place with regard to what types of food they're eating, how they're eating foods and starting to see correlations between different food groups that they're taking in as well. Now, for me, food is just one part of this. There's, this is the relationship with food actually replicates lots of other relationships that are going on deep within inside the system as well. And so for me, this also provides the doorway in to begin to understand through different practices what's going on with people as well. Um, so this for me is, is just it, it's just the start of it. Is, is that okay, Stanford? No, that's perfect. Because I, I, what I really like about your food diary is, which sometimes is not, not often, but sometimes is missed in Western medicine science about the emotion with food. Mm. Um, I'll take myself as, as an example. When I was a kid, I, I'm literally the slowest eater you will ever meet in your life. I can have one mouthful of rice and I literally run around the entire living room 
watch TV, like a whole episode of something and still have the same mouth of rice inside my mouth. Like it's a common known laughing stock in my family between my mom, my nanny, grandmother, everyone, literally. But since I've become a doctor, I, I learned to eat very fast. And I think a few of you have eaten with me and you know how fast I eat. I literally like inhale my food because literally as a doctor in between shifts or in between jobs or in between clinics, you literally have like about 10, 15 minutes, if that at all, to finish the food. And I, I ate so quickly. And I think sometimes in, in the process of busy living, or in an efficient living, should I say, sometimes the emotion it seems to be was neglected. Like I have this food, but what does it taste like? What does it make me feel afterward? And sometimes again, coming back to the same thing that we keep saying almost every webinar, like what does what does it feel make it feel make me feel sorry? What does how does it make me feel the day after? Often, like just in terms of IBS, doesn't actually manifest straight away. It's not like you have a meal of, I don't know, again, using myself as an example, a huge plate of cheese. I'm going to get IBS and bloating and, you know, constipated or diarrhea straight after. Usually it's the day after or even the day after that. And I think because we're moving so fast, sometimes we forget. Oh, I forget. I wouldn't presume for everyone, but I forget the emotion that's associated with the food. And um, I'm going to share that actually to just going a little bit further about that. Um, I think in the Eastern um, philosophy or lifestyle, at least in my upbringing, there's also the emotion that is inside that you put into the food when you're preparing it, which is why I think my family is very against ready meal. And I, I mean, till this day, I don't even actually own the microwave because, you know, we always been taught in, in a custom to actually you know, when you prepare food, it is caring as you, you know, you, it's a way of showing your affection and you love to be the other individual. And sometimes it's that side of food that maybe is important as well. Again, I'm not sure. Um, but again, we already mentioned because IBS is also stress related, like mental health related and emotional health is a very large part of that as well. So what is actually our emotional relationship with the food? can be very important as well. Are we eating it very angrily because it's a diet that we want to stay on for because we want to lose weight? Are we comfort eating, which in some ways almost passive aggressive as well because you're not really enjoying it. You're just eating it because of your emotion or are you truly enjoying everything you eat and you're having a very relationship with it? Again, I'm just asking a question. I've Absolutely no idea. Uh, I'm just going to share one more habit of mine, which I think is good because part of the apparently suggested management for IBS in terms of food and diet is actually to stay well hydrated. Um, again, I'm going to make this towards the question for Colin at the end. Um, I have a habit of since I was the age of 15, maybe uh, when I wake up in the morning, I make like a body temperature mug of water about 400 to 500 mils and just kind of like down it. Um, I, I can't remember exactly where I read it from, but apparently it kind of like wake up the system, but it, it does feel like that. It feels like my gut and my internal organs has rested for so long, it's been hibernating and that warm cup of water actually slowly ease it back to life. Um, try to avoid anything that's cold drink because they are shocked to the system. Your body has to actually warm it back into normal body temperature before it can be digested again properly because the enzyme doesn't work outside body temperature. Um, so that's what I do. And I seem to, my bowel habit myself seems to have gotten better over time. So I don't know, Colin, is there anything said in yoga Ayurveda that actually like cold food, hot food, the temperature of food itself? Yeah. 
Well, you're, you're completely right, actually. Um, it, it, according to what I understand from an Ayurvedic perspective, it, you know, it's like having a hot cup of coffee in the morning to go to the bathroom. It's actually not the coffee that does it. It's actually the warmth of the liquid going into you that creates this movement and helps this movement in the system. So what you've done so nicely, Stanford, is you've, you've exposed the component that we are coming to look at quite a lot, which is the metabolic processing within the system. And the, how sometimes cold aggravates it, but how sometimes cold can bring it down. So on one side, you've got a constipation, which is a drying of the system. On the other side, you've got a loose movement, often with a lot of heat within the system. And so in yoga, we take different approaches to pacify. And so the pacification of each means that we need to understand what's going on for the person if they will tell us with regard to either the loose movement or the drying movement or whether they're alternating between the two. And we start to take slightly different approaches so that what's happening is that in yoga, we can work with pressure. We can increase pressure or decrease pressure within the body. So I can use different positions to increase pressure to massage organs. So I can put pressure like a knee into an abdomen, not my knee, of course, um, but the person's knee <laughs> into their own abdomen. I, I've never, you know, sorry, I never. <laughs> Please do not put your knee into someone else's organ. <laughs> No, but you, you understand what I mean. You, 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 can, you can start to work symmetrically or asymmetrically. You can increase pressure or decrease pressure. All of it depends on the condition that's going on with a person. You can um, either create more heat or you can decrease heat. So we can start to see that we can work with numbers of different variables based on the person, but also the expression of their condition, if they communicate to us clearly enough. So that what you're getting is you're getting the capacity to make decisions. So it means that there won't be a one size fits all approach to IBS. There is gonna be a person approach with the condition based on how the condition is manifesting itself. And it could be that what's happening is that we're using a combination of approach. So what I would do is I will look at what we call ahara, so food-based stuff. Then I would also look at Vihara. I'd look at some kind of lifestyle things. So often I'll get people to do tasks, tasks which bring up different ways that they process or have to deal or face with different rules that they're putting in place. So I'll give them tasks that they, 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 they do within their life. So they, it forms part of the action of their life. And then I'll also start to build different practices for them. For them which will be specifically based on their communication of where the conditions are. And normally I'll do this sort of building these sort of slowly, the more I start to understand them and sort of begin to sort of um, target what's going on. So knowing that I can increase or decrease pressure, if I've got something like very loose bowel movement, I won't put any pressure into the abdomen at all. In fact, I'll try and cool the system down as much as possible. I'll use every technique I know just to cool and calm the system down. If there's a lot of const if there's constipation or blockages within the system, of course, 
in exactly the opposite direction. I'll apply pressure in different orders in different ways to start to get movement back into the system again. And again, the use of foods, warm foods, wet foods, spices like cumin, things like trapola, all of these type of things to just, you know, what, what is going on with someone and what is going to help and what isn't going to help within the system. Does that make sense, Alfred? No, it does. And I, I don't know why, what you just said suddenly made me remember a, a personal anecdote, which is when I was a kid, when I have, whenever I have constipation, my mom would use this technique which she would ask me to like start massaging my hand. Usually the palms of my hand are literally going clockwise and just like literally just go all the way around and sometimes into the fingers as well. I don't know, is this something up to do with the meridian in Chinese medicine? Because the large and small intestine meridian do start or finish in the hands. Maybe it's a distraction technique, I have no idea, but sometimes it works. So, you know, if you want to try and if you suffer from constipation, if you remember from this webinar, go ahead. Um, I think I'm going to stop talking about diet. I, I, I really love talking about food. I can talk about food some, some more. Um, but if you want to hear us talking about food some more, there is also that in the library, um, is, which is included in the membership, just in case you're interested uh, and if you missed it. I think what you mentioned about in terms of exercise was very interesting because I think from a Western perspective, going back to what you said earlier on, we do sometimes recommend a regular exercise for people who are suffer suffering from IBS as well. Because I guess in terms of IBS, it, it almost seems to be the problem is in the digestions, either the, there's a problem in digesting, which means breaking down the food components and elimination, which is the component when you are, you know, getting rid of things from the body. But in between the the two process um, there is assimilation is how we taking in all these nutrients so maybe from a western perspective in a slightly more simplistic view um, if you can increase the need for assimilation so by increasing exercise increasing your metabolism increasing the need of assimilation it kind of take pressure off the digestion and the elimination a little bit it kind of moves the flows a little bit so sometimes it, it does suggest us for us to do more exercise. Didn't specify what kind, but aerobic tends to be better than anaerobic. So things that, you know, you do for longer, you can still speak a little bit, not completely out of breath, uh, slightly better. So not hit class, um, nothing against that. Uh, medication can be helpful. Antiplasmodic, maybe laxative, anti-motility, uh, um, you know, depending on what kind of, what type of, um, IBS you are presenting or what symptoms you're experiencing at the same time. And I think we do recognize that stress management is important for IBS as well. Um, so some people in very, very, very rare case, we use CBT, psychotherapy, hypnotherapy support group. Most certainly, I think in my current NHS work, even in the community job, I rarely see that. Again, I'm not against gastroenterologist, so I have not the most in-depth uh, experience and knowledge with the patient group um, but these tends to be more private option and I'm guessing Colin actually when when all fails in western medicine they come to see you more often as well so I'm actually very intrigued what success stories or case study have you prepared for us so I had a gentleman that came to me um, many years ago and, and what I mean by many years is that things are slow with regard to this. 
it's interesting how fast our minds are, but how slow the system actually is. And it's almost easy for the system to get into trouble, but how slow it is to get out of trouble, but also how fixed we are on our approaches to things. Like we put lines in the ground to say, I do this or I don't do that, or this is how I do something. But I still, you know, the body's objecting to, for some reason, but yet we're really fixed on numbers of different things. So I remember this one gentleman that he came, he had incredibly bad anxiety, huge, huge fatigue, and also IBS. So for me, it, it, IBS is, is often, like you mentioned, Sam, it, it's, it's an accompanying thing. There's, there's other things that are going on for me within this. And so almost that we've got this, this kind of this, this anxiety, this fatigue, and this IBS that is going on. And I can tell you that it probably took about five years of work for this person to get out of trouble, to understand a lot of the way that their anxiety, and anxiety is built on fear, and fear and the way that we create rules and identity and how we look at and respond to things that we don't know. To unravel all of this in a safe way is an individual journey. And so almost in a way that what's going to happen is that each person needs to view their condition as an opportunity, an opportunity to go on an individual journey. Yes, you've got this diagnosis of IBS. Yes, you've got this anxiety. Yes, you've got this fatigue. But this is a, an individual journey, somewhere that you're going on to discover lots of things about yourself. And so with this approach, there was success for this person. Where I haven't had success is when, for me, it's about consistency and it's about long-term. And quite often what happens is that, and I've made mistakes, is I've gone in quite fast with people and said, look, you know, we need to look at this, this, and this. And actually it's been a mistake and I need to have taken a, a much slower approach with people. And for me, that's where things have, have gone wrong because I haven't taken the time to spend time to get to know the person to really understand what's going on for them and allow them to uncover the fact that they need to go on their own journey rather than me jumping up and down and whipping at the side going, hey, come on, you've got to go on a journey. It's that they need to discover that actually, okay, I can do something about this. You know, and it's going to take time, but I'm up for it and I'm ready to do it. You know, so the, for me, there's been, there's been both sides and I've, I've learned from my eagerness has actually repelled people away and caused an issue and hasn't helped them. And, you know, and, and so, you know, it, it, it's a relationship between two people. Does that make any sense, Duncan? No, it does. And it reminds me of a patient that I've seen recently. Um, so she came with quite severe, severing degree of sorry, severe degree of depression and um, 
it was a long, long consultation. And at one stage, she, she is rather desperate and she just said, doctor, please, please, please help me. Um, can you just give me something? It's like, okay, like, you know, if that's one thing I can give you, what do you want? It's like, well, give me, give me a pill. I don't know, maybe therapy sessions. I, I, I just want to be happy. It's like, okay, um, I don't have magic. I, 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 that is not a happy pill, uh, as far as I know, or that person who's invented it would be very, very rich somewhere off on an island of his or her own. Um, or already have won a Nobel Prize and so far, I don't think we have those people. And therapy itself is not, you know, a happy process either. You know, you do a lot of deep digging of your own personality and past and uh, thoughts and minds and emotions. Uh, and there's no, there's no such quick fix to the problem. And I think that, the reason why I think of that example is, Colin, when you said you have a really good successful story of working with this gentleman after five years and you managed to have the success. Um, however, I, I, you know, the cynic side, a cynical side of me thinking, actually for the gentleman before the five-year mark, or, you know, whenever that success is achieved, he probably thought, oh, I've been failing, you know, anytime before that five years mark is not quite there, is not quite resolution, and he might see that as a failure. And sometimes it's just the time that you need, as you beautifully said, um, to manage that success. And the other side of it, I guess, is, yes, you, you take a long time, maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe even longer to achieve success, but how long did the, did the, the problem take to cultivate? Mm. Again, going back to the syndromic nature of IBS, it, it's multifactorial, it's not one thing um, that causes the problem, and it's unlikely that that, you know, all these multi-factors are there only for a month or so and suddenly you have IBS. Most likely they are years and years of build-up. Um, so yeah, I think patience and consistency is really, really important. And Leah is asking, have either of us noticed any change in people's bowel experience that look like they are due to lockdown? Many people have had a dramatic change to the rhythms of life over the past year. It's, this, it's making itself felt in people's regularity or regular irregularity. Uh, I am not sure. Again, I'm not an enterologist. I, I do ask about people's bowel habits. I tend not to dwell on it too, too much. I actually personally realized mine got more regular because now I have more time during the whole lockdown yet I have more time at home so mine got more regular but I don't know Colin maybe you can shed some light on, <laughs> on this question. Well, in, in a similar way to you I've seen both things occur for people that have achieved stability during this time because actually what they've had is they've had a chance to restructure their lives in a positive way for themselves and face a number of things. They've seen more regularity occur. For those people that have felt, I, I'm gonna use the word um, trapped. They, they felt that they can't live their life in a particular way. I've seen more irregularity occur. So I've actually seen the, either what's happened is the last year has helped some people create a structure and that structure has had a knock-on effect and for other people it's put too much pressure on them and it's created a lot of irregularity which comes out as a lot of emotional issues a lot of mental health issues um, and I've seen a lot of irregularity with regard to whether it's menstrual cycle whether it's um, bowel movements whether it's um, 
like you mentioned earlier, anger or communication, I've seen lots of irregularity with regard to that. So I've seen either side of things. And so I think the opportunity is there for each person based on the circumstance they find themselves in. Um, Great answer. Um, Sierra, thank you for the question, by the way, keep them coming. Uh, Sierra is asking, do you have any opinion on eating breakfast and intermittent fasting? And if it's good or bad for IBS? Uh, again, I'm just going to draw from my own experience. I used to not eat breakfast at all. Uh, that hasn't really affected my bad habit that much. Nowadays, I eat more breakfast because I exercise a lot more than I used to, say, 10 years ago. So my body needs it. I would just say, from personal experience, if you eat when you are hungry and your body's needing the food, usually that's better for its rhythm. Uh, I don't quite believe that you always have to eat breakfast, just personally, not medically speaking, just personally. Intermittent fasting, uh, I don't have that much experience. I tend not to eat four hours before bed. So I, and I typically sleep for about seven, eight hours. So kind of, you know, have 11 to 12 hours not eating. Um, but again, that's just a personal habit. I'm not sure about IBS. Colin? Okay, so there's, um, again, three different types of people, which means there's three different approaches to um, food. One we find, um, and again, it depends on what's expressing itself within each person, because they can swap between different categories, dependent on their activities, dependent on changes in what's expressing itself within each person. Sorry, Kiara, I hope this is making sense um, to you. Um, so what we find is that we actually find that for some people eating breakfast is a must, otherwise they will actually look to strangle someone else that's close by them um, if they don't eat. And I, I discovered this with regard to some friends. If I, let's say I go, I go hiking with a, with, a, with a couple of friends and I know that one of them will always eat before they go and the rest of us won't bother eating. And this one person will actually pack food for this other person, even though that other person feels they're okay. Because halfway through, they'll turn around and go, I'm hungry. There's gotta be somewhere to eat. And I'm like, we're in the middle of a national park. There's nothing, nowhere to eat unless you wanna try and catch something and eat it. It's not gonna work out, but we've managed to bring this with you. And they're like, brilliant. And, and so it's very interesting that what happens is that certain people need food on a regular basis other people don't and they actually have food through habit so they get up in the morning they're told that breakfast is the main meal and they have breakfast and they actually don't need breakfast and actually the best time for them to eat is probably about 11 o'clock and so to eat at 11 maybe at three four o'clock but what they actually do is they get up and they eat breakfast because they're told to eat breakfast they have something mid-morning because they've had that mid-morning and then they have something at lunchtime and they look forward to having something mid-afternoon and they have something late in the evening as well. And suddenly it, 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 there, there's this kind of rhythm and there's rules and this sort of thing that's laid down, which is very different to what they actually need. So for me, there's a spectrum with regard to understanding what we, the difference between what we want and what we need. And so with regard to this is, this is my opinion with regard to food, is to begin to discover what it is we genuinely need uh, and the difference between this and actually the driving force with regard to our desires and our emotional cravings and also our habits that have been formed based on what we've been told or how we're told things should be. 
Now, with regard to fasting, um, I hope this is answering the question of KKR. Um, with regard to the fasting, um, in, in, it's very interesting is that in, it sounds very strange, but we only fast if there is an illness. And what that means is it, is it, it means that when there is illness within the system, when there's disease within the system, this is when we fast. So my preferred approach with regard to, let's say, IBS is to begin to understand food structures that are being taken. And rather than to take fasting, which almost pushes into the system and it's something quite extreme, the system has to compensate for doing that action. Because it's the, I tend to start to move out certain food groups, first of all, and then move out other food groups and then begin to lay in some food groups in. So for me, consistency is key because IBS is something of inconsistency. And so for me, there has to be a consistency aligned with the structure and the constitution of the individual and also their mental patterns with regard to, and the way that they're working with their rules, one of consistency as well. So for me, consistency is key with regards to dealing with an inconsistent condition. Whereas if I take intermittent fasting, I put the body under a huge, a little bit more pressure. It's just my opinion and what I've seen. Um, I don't know, Kira, how do you feel about that? I agree with Kira. It makes total sense. That's what she typed. Um, because especially when you're unwell, you're sick, your body naturally fasts as well. Your body tends to shut down and not have that much appetite. So I definitely agree. Two more things, which is one, I think the friend, the person who packed food for a friend is a great friend. So I want one of that. Please introduce me. And the last one is I, I do eat lunch around 11.30 as well. So I'm going to be now be able to tell my colleagues that I'm not weird because Colin said that I can. Uh, Eleanor has a question as well. You mentioned exercise can help with IBS, but do you think IBS can make some form of exercise or movement more difficult to practice? Um, again, I don't have personal experience of IBS, so I can't quite relate to that, but I'm guessing if you have a lot of bloating or if you are having the diarrhea type, probably certain exercise is going to be very difficult. I'm on top of my head, running and cycling probably not very, very easy to do. Uh, but again, Colin probably can explain a bit better than I do as always. Um, there's the experiences um, it dependent on the fluctuation between the two, these two things. Is the approach will be slightly different, Eleanor. Um, because what will happen is that the experience is either going many times, rarely feeling empty or relieved, some kind of physical bloating, um, can't let go of it all. Um, and there are certain activities that are, let's say, contraindicated during these times. So let's say you've got loose, very, very loose bowel movement, sort of increasing pressure into the abdomen is, is probably not a very wise thing. Um, but let's say when you have constipation, increasing pressure in the abdomen is a wise thing. Is, is a wise thing. So you've got these sort of two different approaches, um, working with breathing techniques, 
um, something with it with a, when there's loose bowel movement, something like Kapalabhati, not wise, something like um, Kapalabhati when there is constipation with other things is probably going to be helpful. So, that, but but it can dry the system out. So it's got it's how, how everything is done has to be adapted to the person with the condition. So you've got the person, you're looking at the person, then you've got the condition. And then you're understanding how that is and whether actually what's happening is the activity that they come to do, the exercise that they come to do will either increase the condition or decrease the expression of the condition within the system. And so for me, this is the first stage of pacification is that we're starting to look at these exercises, how the person is doing these exercises, the effect those exercises are having, whether or not that the movements are easy or difficult. So let's say you're giving twisting to someone and it's a twisting activity. And let's say there's loose bowel movement, we wouldn't do this, but let's say what's happened, it's constipated. You, you would allow that to happen, but it would have been a very, very, very gentle way. If there was bloating, again, we would target alternate sides, gentle twisting. All of these different things would be based on our observation of the individual and how each of these different tools would then affect the individual to actually pacify what's happening. So for me, Eleanor, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a really, really good question. And it's something that's based on the observation of the individual with the condition, and then the varying and modifying of the exercise activity of tool, whether that's a them walking, whether it's running, whether it's cycling, whether it's asana, whether it's pranayama, any, whether it's any kind of technique, how it goes into the system, we're observing and watching the immediate effect and the knock-on effects of all these things as well. I hope that answered the question. Yeah, she said it makes sense. Uh, I think we're coming close, well, we've just gone over the one hour mark, so uh, I'm going to wrap up and say I'm going to use Colin's tool, which is the food diary, especially if you are recording down the emotion associated with eating and the emotion associated afterward. Probably quite a good place to start if you have any sort of bowel trouble, especially IBS. Again, if there's any worrying sign, any of the ones that I mentioned tonight, most recommended option would be go to see your GP first, just to make sure there's nothing sinister going on. And then if that's the, if that's the case, then I think finding out what is your relationship with food and what's your relationship with kind of your lifestyle may be a good place to start. Colin? Thank you, Stanford. For me, um, it, it, it's just reflecting on this and talking it through with you and, and all your guys, and thank you for your questions, guys, as well. Um, what's really coming out of this for me is it how individual it is, how patient we have to be, how it's a huge opportunity how interconnected all these things are and how it is possible with consistency and patience to move forwards and come out the other side. So this is for me, the message I think that I'd like to give. And I think next time we meet, um, in a three weeks time, we're going to be looking at jet lag. Jet lag. Now, jet lag is not quite what it seems and I hope that's what we're going to be talking about because it, it may not just be you know you getting into an aeroplane going abroad and being disorientated and drinking as many tequilas as possible to try and catch up with the time zone that you're in it's going to be something slightly different so I, I want to um that sounds like a movie <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> we will see you next time, I think. <laughs> so I, I'm really, I'm really looking forward to seeing you guys um, next time where we're going to discuss jet lag and hopefully um, just begin to expose just a little bit more about what's going on with jet lag um, and how we can best minimise the effects of it. Lovely to have you tonight. See ya. Thanks, guys. Take care. Thank you so much for coming.